Good morning. So good to be here. I am Steve Friesen, one of the retired pastors here at Grace as of last August. And uh, I consider it an honor to be called up from the old guy's bullpen <laughs> to take a turn on the mound this morning, something I'm very happy to do, a little bit nervous, of course. But uh, just grateful to be able to pinch hit for Pastor Jack. Well, that's a change of metaphors. So, but he and Courtney are on their way to Oklahoma City for some uh, significant test work and then, of course, major surgery for Courtney a week from this Wednesday. And I know we're going to be praying. We are praying. But what a blessing. I just want to say I'm thankful for the privilege of serving and belonging here. Even though I'm retired, Bobby and I still get to call this place home. And that's a real blessing. So, and speaking of calling Grace home, I am thankful for the, to the Lord for not only those of you with whom we've done life for the last 20 years, but I am super grateful for those of you who've come to Grace since last August and whom I do not know and whom I've never met. I'm really glad that you're here and uh, God is moving and I look forward to meeting you as the Lord leads. I'm excited for the new team members. We've, it seems like we had a new pastor interviewed almost every week, but, uh, or a new staff member. It's great to see how God is bringing a new team together. Obviously, we're in transition, and that's a good thing. But I just want to say thank you to Pastor Jack and Pastor Kyle and our executive director of ministries, Julie Dirks, and other staff team, elders, ministry team members who have done and carried such a big load during this past year of high search team activity. You may or may not have known. They were looking and praying and interviewing many different people. And so I'm just grateful for God's provision. I know you were praying for that, so was I. And I know you'll continue to pray, as I am, for God's unity and his favor and his blessing on all the adjustments that Pastor Will and Pastor Sean and Amy Thompson will be making their families as they get to know us and build their ministry teams over these next months. But I'm so glad. I'm excited to see what God's doing. Well, with the start of the COVID-19 related, uh, highly unusual, no spectators allowed Tokyo Summer Olympics, uh, which began this week, as we all know, I don't know about you, but I've been spending a a lot more time in front of the TV. And of course, it's Tokyo. And of course, Japan is part of my life story. So we're very interested in what's going on there. I am not a runner, but I'm especially drawn to the track events. I haven't seen any yet. But the track events at the Olympics, and I haven't counted them, but I'm told there are 25 track events from the 100 meters and the relays all the way to the 10,000 meters. And then, of course, there's that 42,195-meter marathon race. And that's not even in Tokyo. That's being held in Hokkaido. That's 500 miles north of Tokyo. The reason they're doing that is because of days like this in Tokyo. Summer is super hot and humid, and I guess they had mercy on those long-distance runners. So that race is in Hokkaido. I'm, I'm thinking of racing, thinking of running. Can you imagine somebody in the Olympics, they're in a race, they've started, they're, they're running down the track or around their designated course, and then all of a sudden, somebody veers off the track or off the designated course to run their own race somewhere else. You go, that would be nuts. That's, 
That's ludicrous. That's unrewardable. Why would you do that? But that's exactly what our prophet Jonah in today's passage in the Bible did. Jonah was a runner, not in the Olympics. The only problem Jonah had was that he chose to run away from God and away from the mission that God had given him and called him to join him in. So running with God and for God, that's awesome. But running from God is risky and unfruitful. And I appreciate the unadorned honesty of this four-chapter book in the Old Testament. Yes, Jonah ran, but that's not the end of the story. Do you remember any of the old Southwest Airlines commercials that would portray an awkward or an embarrassing situation and then ask the question, want to get away? Okay, if you're 70 like me, you, you know what I'm talking about, okay? But maybe you don't remember those. It's been a while, I know. But the obvious message was, if you're having a bad day, or if you've messed up, your life is falling apart, or you don't like the circumstances you're in, well, you want to really depart somewhere distant, then Southwest Airlines can get you there cheaply and quickly. I'm thinking Jonah would have loved to take one of those. That's pre-COVID, pre-COVID. In the first chapter of the book, Jonah has heard the upsetting and overwhelming commission from God to convey his message of judgment to this brutal and hated Assyrian regime in their capital city, the world-renowned capital city of Nineveh, which is about 500 miles north and east of Israel. Think about the assignment. This would not be an easy one. This would be a long and difficult journey, but it would also be extremely dangerous to do what God was asking him to do. You know, Ninevites were famous for, well, let's just call it mutilating those people they did not like. And uh, it would be like, uh, imagine during the Cold War, here again, dating myself, but being told to preach against communism in Red Square during the height of the Cold War. Or maybe now being sent to Mecca to preach God's judgment. That would not be easy. Wouldn't you be tempted to run from that assignment? I probably would too. Jonah is understandably afraid of his life. But even beyond those fears, if we look a little deeper, we find out from Jonah chapter 4 verse 2 that his greatest anxiety stemmed from the fact that he did not like those people. His pride, his prejudice. He didn't think those nasty Ninevites deserve the grace and compassion of God, should they repent and receive mercy. Unlike Jesus, Jonah didn't want his enemies to become his friends. No, he wanted them to burn. So Jonah had an I want to get away moment. And in his panic and fear and stubbornness, he booked a passage on a ship headed in the opposite direction of the known world, the farthest reaches of the known world, opposite from Nineveh. Jonah was probably thinking, if I can get away from the land of Israel where God calls it home base, if I can just distance myself from God's immediate presence, maybe he'll just pick someone else to do what he's calling me to do. He'll leave me alone. You know what Jonah didn't understand is how compassionately, passionately God loves those who not only belong to him, but those who don't belong to him yet. 
he cares about their eternal destiny and how jealous God is in the best sense of the word for our affection and our heartfelt engagement with him in his mission. Think about this. How many times have you and I run away, run from God? We said no to him. We've headed in the opposite direction. And those times are probably more frequent, maybe daily, than we care to remember. Maybe that's where some of us are today. We're resisting God, and we're going on our own way. Yeah, we're here in church, but our hearts are somewhere else, or we're struggling. How does God respond when you and I run? Well, Jonah chapter 1, if you read it, and we won't read it today, but in God in his deep compassion and hard-to-shake holy love hurls a 100-plus-mile-an-hour fastball right in the strike zone of Jonah's ship. Why does he do that? Well, he's targeting his uncooperative servant. He's bringing his disobedience to light, and he is redirecting. He's going to redirect his heart. God is pursuing Jonah. That's the good news. But you might think, well, it's like the fervor that a police and federal agents pursue convicted murderers. But that's really not God's heart. It's more like a parent who's searching for their missing child at an amusement park. God pursues you, and he pursues me. Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He wants us to experience his fellowship and his pleasure. He wants us to have a part in his mission, to extend his life, his love, and his light to a world living in spiritual darkness. And let me ask you, how dark is our world? When sailors on Jonah's ship, in desperation, tried to root out the cause of the storm, let's draw lots and see whose fault this storm is, because it's not going away. Jonah picked the marked stone, and immediately everybody was on him. Who are you? Where are you from? Who do you belong to? And he had to confess that he belonged to the Lord of heaven and earth, who made the sea and the dry land. Oh my God, why would you run from him if he made the sea? Well, the storm didn't abate. Jonah said, throw me overboard and you'll save yourselves. They wouldn't. Finally, they, after desperately trying, they gave up and they just pleaded with God. They said a prayer to Jonah's God. Please do not hold this man's blood against us. We're throwing him overboard. And they did. And as soon as they threw him overboard, guess what happened? The storm stopped. Those sailors came to know the true and living God of heaven and earth. Well, that was the salvation of the crew. That's a foretaste of what God wanted to see in Nineveh. The sailors were saved. But what about our man Jonah? Where is he? Well, he's sinking. And you might think, well, Jonah's out of sight. Tough luck, buddy. You ran from God, you're paying. You're going to drown in the depths of that sea. We might think that's what he gets for running from God. But chapter 1 tells us that God had a greater plan. I love this. So after letting Jonah sink deep down into the depths of the sea, come to his senses, cry out for deliverance, God in his compassion appointed a large fish to swallow Jonah and save him from death. The ship is not punishment. The fish is not punishment. The ship is salvation. 
See that prophet? Go get him. Gulp. <laughs> I love that moment. How does a disobedient prophet taste? <laughs> you know, Navy SEALs couldn't have done a better job than that fish did. So chapter 2, Jonah, our passage for, day, for today is an intimate conversation between a dripping, wet, and now humbled prophet riding inside the spongy darkness of a huge fish's belly headed back toward the land of his commissioning. A conversation between Jonah and God that's personal and very intimate. I'm drawn to this. And that's what I want to unpack today. In this deeply personal chapter, Jonah is recounting, Jonah is actually praying a prayer of praise to God, recounting his desperation, promising, thanking God for his deliverance, and promising to fulfill the mission if God will bring him home safely. I want to look together with us at Jonah's prayer and then draw a few lessons from connecting with God in the middle of our messes especially when we've blown our assignment and resisted his call. So let's read chapter 2 of Jonah. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay vain regard to idols, to vain idols, forsake the hope, their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. So inside the smelly belly of a gigantic fish, Jonah has undergone a radical transformation. His underwater prayers of desperation have miraculously been answered. And he finds himself alive and well after almost dying. So in this warm and dark and quiet and squishy place, Jonah's not praying for deliverance. He's thanking God for it. He's pondering in amazement how God could hear his cries on the way down to certain death at the bottom of the sea. And he's promising God to listen if given a second chance. So this is a beautiful prayer. It's worth our attention. I noticed several things. One, Jonah's distress and despair Two, Jonah's desperate prayer. Jonah's desperate prayer. And three, Jonah's delirious gratitude. That's the outline if you want it. So let's look at Jonah's distress and despair. 
verses 2 to 7. I'll read them again. Verse 3 and 4. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And he said, I'm gone. I'm driven away from your sight. Verse 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me, etc., etc. I went down, down, down. Jonah's sinking to a watery grave, and he knows he's a goner. He's trapped by forces of gravity. He's wrapped sushi-style in weedy grave clothes, and he's at his ends. My life, verse 7, was fainting away. Maybe that's where some of us are this morning. We're desperate and hopeless, like we're going down to our graves. The sinister lie that God has abandoned me feels very true in this moment. Maybe we're drowning in our marriage. Maybe we're experiencing intense pain from somebody rejecting us. Maybe we've made some major mistakes. Or maybe someone else has sinned against us and we're trapped. Maybe we're in an addiction that's wrapped its tentacles so tightly around our soul that we don't know what to do. Maybe we're wrestling with failure at work or a relationship we've given up on and we know we're going down. May I say, the good news is, God has not lost sight of us. He cares simply, he cares deeply and is simply waiting for us to get desperate enough to cry out to him with an honest and humble heart. When I was in seminary in Texas many years ago, I was intending to marry a young woman after asking for her hand and getting permission from her family. But after we returned to Dallas from that trip to Alabama, she inexplicably, at least in my mind, pulled away, and she cited questions and unsettledness of soul. So I suggested we take some time, both pray for direction, and I promised her I wouldn't pressure her or I wouldn't even contact her until... She gave me a definite yes or no in a phone call. I assumed I would hear back in a few days. But days turned into weeks. One week went by, no, no word. Two weeks went by, no word. Three weeks went by, absolutely nothing. And I began to get desperate. I didn't know what to do. We had planned to attend a large conference in Dallas, and... Uh, the first day of that conference, I remember during break time, walking the halls of an arena that held 20,000 people looking for her. I know that was against our agreement. That was fruitless. That was hopeless. I did not see her. The next day of the conference, I spoke to a friend on the bus headed toward the conference. He asked how we were doing, and uh, he told me he'd heard that she was engaged. And I gave him a weird look, and then he goes, you didn't know? It wasn't to me. That was the hardest night of my life up to that point. And I realized something. I needed to call out to God in my desperate pain for his help and his perspective. I wrestled with him. I gave her up to him. And then God gave me something in return. It was a peace that nothing could explain. And uh, would you believe I had this, my heart instead of bitterness was replaced by a compassion. And I really wanted to pick up the phone and say, you can say no, it's okay, I'm okay. She called that night, 10.30. And I suspected, as I suspected, the answer was no. 
She'd met someone else and was gone from my life. But God's peace never left me. And he's been so good to me since. But that was also his goodness. I believe God allows desperate circumstances into our lives to bring us to a place where we're forced to call to him for help. That's his mercy. That's what Jonah did. So after describing his distress and his despair, Jonah reviews the desperate prayer that he prayed. Look at verse 2. I called out to the Lord. Now he's doing this underwater, but he's calling out to the Lord. Out of the belly of Sheol, way down deep, I cried. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I've got no air left in my lungs, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. I'm going down, but I'm remembering God. Jonah's underwater cries for help. Shot up from the depths of the sea into the throne room of God. Can you picture that? Down here, like a missile launched from a submarine. The prayer of Jonah enters the throne room of God. He hears. He never lets go of his own. He hears their cries. It's not too late. That's telling us to turn to God in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our crisis and despair. You may feel like you're drowning in a mess of your own making, that you're totally underwater and you're sinking. But God hears prayers from way below sea level. That's why I called it underwater prayers. Wherever you are, wherever we are, no matter how far, call out to Jesus. No matter how desperate, how strongly it feels true that he's abandoned us, he has not. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is the living God who created heaven and earth. He hears because he made the ears. He hears our cries and responds in love and mercy when we call out to him. One time when our three boys were small, Andy is our oldest, Toby is our youngest. The boys were small. Bobby and I were missionaries living in Yokohama, Japan. And we put our guys down for the night and we're taking a leisurely bath. It was close to midnight. The rest of the house was dark. Mom and Dad, you get this. From our bathroom, we heard something unusual. What was that? A sound of a child's desperate cries coming from down the street, down from our house. I made the comment, boy, some kid's up late and in trouble. And then Bobby and I both looked at each other. It's like, wait a minute. Suddenly we got this weird feeling. We got dressed, we went to check on the boys, and that's when we noticed the front door was wide open. Suddenly a Japanese young man appeared in the doorway with our youngest son, Toby, whose eyes were red from crying. I felt relief and I felt shame at the same time. Toby had woken up, come downstairs looking for mom and dad, but the house was dark. He thought we were gone. In his desperation, he went outside crying for mom and dad. What was really weird is we'd heard those cries and didn't even recognize our own son's voice. We never expected him to be outside. And your brain goes, that can't be him. He's asleep. 
The good news from Jonah is that God never mistakes or tunes out the voice of his children when they cry to him in utter sincerity and humility. He recognizes your voice. He knows who you are. He's incredibly quick to respond. Safe in the belly of the fish, Jonah's recounting that. God, you heard my prayer. You rescued me. So I'm offering you a prayer of delirious gratitude. Verse 9, but with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God, I can't believe I'm alive. Thank you for hearing my desperate cry. Thank you for saving me. I appreciate your mercy. I'll gladly do whatever you ask me to do. No matter how hard it is, you saved me. Thank you. Here are some things I think about, some lessons that jump out from this chapter. The first one is this. Whatever the painful and overwhelming circumstances that you and I might be going through, Jonah teaches us this. Recognize God's hand in our distress. Recognize God's hand in our distress. C.S. Lewis, a famous author of yesteryear, wrote in the book Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, shouts to us in our pain. You hear God's voice. Do you recognize his hand in your distress? That's really important. Jonah said in verse 3, though he was thrown overboard by sailors, look what he says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep. All your waves, talking of God, and your billows passed over me. Jonah knew that the storm was tailor-made for him by God. It's your storm. It's the distress that you're bringing into my life. Those cold waters of Mediterranean, they don't feel like love. I know that. But God had to let Jonah go down before he could send his Underwater Prophet Rescue Service, UPS specialist, to grab him. But inside the fish, safe, Jonah realized God had cared too much for him to let him go his own way, and he was giving him a second chance. I love that. I know some of you heard this story before, because it's such a pivotal one in my life. I've told it many times. When I was a sophomore in high school, living in Texas on my parents' furlough from Japan. I played uh, on a church baseball team one summer, and the last game of the season was against a team from Buckner Boys Home in Dallas. And before the game, I remember talking to my teammates, and I don't know why I said this, but I was trying to prop everything up and maybe feel tough. I said to them, hey, we can beat these guys easy. They're just orphans. They're just orphans. I did not know how that would move heaven, but it did. Little did I know, God loved me too much to let me live with that kind of pride and prejudice. And what happened was I was a right fielder that got moved to third base because the third baseman went on vacation for that last game, and there I was. A guy stole third And I didn't know how to play the bag, and he slid right into my leg, and he basically crushed my left leg, fracturing my femur in the growth joint above the knee. I don't remember anything else about the game. I know we lost it. 
But days later, I was lying in a cast in pain on the couch at home. And I was remembering what I said about orphans. And I thought at first, God hates me. And then I realized that he loved me too much to let me go down that road of insensitivity and pride. And I began to recognize God's hand in my distress and see my circumstances with different eyes. What is it in your life? What distress is he sending to you? And are you recognizing his hand in that? Will you respond to that? Will you believe that it's out of love that you're hurting and respond? Number two, not only do we need to recognize God's hand in our distress, secondly, we need to call out to him wherever we are. It's very simple. God made a, gave us a mouth and a voice. Use it toward him. Jonah didn't deserve God's mercy, but he cried out to God anyway. So no matter how deep, how desperate my troubles have become, I don't need to clean up my mess before I can talk to God. That's the good news. I'm drowning. Talk to him. I'm suffering. Call out to him. Cry to him. Come to him in the middle of your crisis. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 are some verses I love. They encourage us with the truth that Jesus has gone through it all. He knows what distress is like, and yet he's never sinned, but he calls us. Here's what it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable, double negative, meaning we have someone who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have someone who in every way has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And here's the invitation. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. How do you do that? You call on his name. That's what it means. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive a spanking? Of course not. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? After it's over? No, in time of need, in the middle of the crisis, when you're going down, call. Jesus has paid for our sins. Our Father knows our weaknesses. He's on call. Jesus is on call for our cries. He's listening. So call out to him. Our honest prayers of desperation reach the heart of God instantaneously. We have access to the throne room of the King of Kings. I mentioned Toby a few years uh, earlier. He's now grown up. He's a musician. He plays guitar for Jeremy Camp when Jeremy's on tour. Jeremy's a Christian recording artist. Uh, and if they come within, oh, three hours of Newton, we like to go and go to the show. And uh, so, yeah, Toby, can you put us on the guest list? Yeah, of course, Mom and Dad. You, we'll get you in. You get a VIP and, you know, you, so we get that. And... Uh, can you imagine getting a VIP ticket, and, which gives you access to earlier entrance into the venue and personal time with the artist and lets you go backstage during the show? And, and can you imagine going, nah, I don't think I'm going to use that tonight. I don't think I'm going to go. I don't think I'll go in. Well, what? You got a VIP. Why don't you use it? We have a VIP pass to the throne room of heaven. We have access because of Jesus to God's throne room. And the call is, use it. 
even if you're in a mess, especially when you're in desperation. So after calling out to God, we need to thank him for his deliverance. That's what Jonah did. Praise him in the sea ambulance. Praise him for his incredible power to save. Psalm 119, one of my favorite verses, it simply says this, all things are your servants. All things are your servants. Everything in the universe that's created by God listens to God. From whales to worms in Jonah to plants, except the prophet, but he listened eventually. But all things are your servants. God has a toolbox. It's amazing. He has the wisdom and power to know how to use every tool in his box. And I love that because God knows how to help us. He can send the help we need exactly when we need it because all things are his servants. And what does he have prepared to send into your life this week? I can hardly wait to find out or mine. So our oldest son, Andy, and I had the privilege of taking a two-week father-son trip back to Japan six years ago, a place where I grew up and where we ministered, and Andy was born and raised. So one of the highlights of our trip was visiting missionaries Friends who were doing relief and outreach work in the northern Japan city of Ishinomaki, north of Tokyo, several hundred miles. If you remember, this is the area that got devastated by the tsunami in 2011. And they, they went there to do relief work, and, and God has raised up a people. A church is there. And anyway, many people who suffered greatly have come to know Christ in that place. But that Sunday morning in Ishinomaki, Andy and I were gathered with a group of about 30 people in this house church. And we were asked, Andy and I, to sing a special song. And we had chosen, before we went, uh, Matt and Beth Redmond's song, You Never Let Go. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your perfect love is casting out fear. And even when I'm caught in the storms, in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. I know you are near. I noticed a lady was listening really intently. And after the service, we met her. Her name was Mrs. Kimura. And then she said, I, I need to tell you a story. She and her in-laws were caught in their home when the giant tsunami wave came in. And as the dark, swirling waters engulfed their entire house, she, saw, she said, I saw my mother-in-law drown in front of me. Nothing I could do to save her. And then I thought, I'm next. So she took a deep breath and then went unconscious. And while she was unconscious, the invading waves of the sea ripped her house from its foundation and drug it inland several miles. Eventually it came to rest. Unknown to anybody, Mrs. Kimura was trapped underneath that house as it made its way to its eventual resting place. Of course she was unconscious. Her daughter had escaped earlier to a high and safe place from which she looked on in horror at her house moving and carried, being carried away. And when it came to rest, her daughter and friends rushed to that house to search to see if anybody had survived. But unconscious and unresponsive, Mrs. Kimura could not hear the cries of her daughter. Okachan! Mama, are you there? Answer me. No response. Over and over, her daughter called for mom. Finally, she just became exhausted and said, okay, one last 
time. Mama. At that moment, in the mercy of God, Mrs. Kimura regained consciousness for just a few minutes, long enough to hear her daughter's final cries and respond. Somebody is alive. They dug through. They found her. They pulled her out. She was a mess. Four years later, we saw her. She was in church with her husband that Sunday, telling me of God's mercy. Though she'd not yet trusted Christ at that point, she knew her life was saved for a reason. She was super grateful. She's since come to faith in Christ and been baptized. Jonah knew that God had spared his life. Only God can do that. Our desperate circumstances are not too hard for a God who longs and loves to rescue people who need him. Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is really beautiful. Don't try, he's saying to you and me, to rely on anything else or anyone else other than the living God. That's my recommendation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no other person in the universe capable of hearing us or saving us when we're in the mess that we get into. No one else is home base for our souls. No one else sees. No one else hears. No one else understands. No one else loves like Jesus Christ. Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. This is God himself. I love this. And he says, there is no other God besides me a righteous God, and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, all you at the Olympics, all you in every country of the world. Turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. Do you believe that? Call out to him. Do we deserve his mercy? Of course not. But God loves to lavish his salvation on anyone who will call on his name. Jesus died to save you and me. We've focused on his sacrifice today. His body was broken. His blood was shed to cover our sins, permanently take care of them. He removed the barrier that separated you and me from God. And he opened the door to life and forgiveness and eternal life and a restored connection with the God who made us for himself who longs to have us at his table forever. If you've not called out to him today, like, I need Jesus. I don't know where I'm going when I die. Then call on Jesus today. Maybe you're in a mess. You know Christ, but you haven't called out to him. This is your opportunity. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're very familiar with desperate people. And you understand where we are and what we need better than we do. And thank you for allowing us these circumstances that force us to look to you. Help us not to run, but to come. We thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. I know I've sent up uh, plenty of underwater prayers in my life, and I know you have too. And, uh, you know, it's great to remember that Jonah was Nineveh's only connection to know what to do in their distress. And as we do our sending, I want you to all keep that in mind as well, that you may be someone's only connection to know what to do uh, when they're underwater. So let's stand. Let's do our sending together. And we'll be sent. We have been motivated 
by the love God has shown us in Christ. We have been united in our worship of the living God together. We have been encouraged by our fellowship with one another. And we have been equipped by the preaching of God's word. Now go in the power of the Holy Spirit. In all that you do, love God boldly. In whatever family, neighborhood, workplace, or school God has placed you, love people sacrificially. In whatever stage of life you find yourself, look for opportunities to faithfully lead others to do the same. We are the church. Now go, go be the church. Grace, you are sent.